You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Hey everybody, this is Scott O'Donohoe, one of the pastors of the Village Church that gathers in downtown Hamilton, Ohio. This is episode three of a recap series about a class we're currently teaching uh, in May of 2021 here at the Village called Not Our Own, where we're hoping to cultivate uh, clarity, compassion, and an evangelistic community through conversations about gender and sexuality. Uh, If you've not listened to the first couple of episodes, I would encourage you to do that uh, before we hop into what we're talking about today, uh, which is actually part of the second class that we uh, walked through together. What we're asking the big picture question of how did we get here? Uh, And while we kind of addressed that in a very narrow, specific sense last week, we are asking uh, that in a much bigger scope this week with how did humanity actually arrive at a place where these conversations uh, about gender and sexuality are so divisive in the culture, in the church, between the church and the culture, within the church, um, all of that stuff. And so uh, we are going to be looking at Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, in this episode, however, we're going to look at only Genesis 1 through 2, uh, and we'll look at Genesis 3 in the next uh, episode. I just want to keep these bite-size, if I can, for your listening pleasure um, and ease of accessibility, and uh, man, from from my voice as well. So uh, we're going to look at Genesis 1 through 2, but before we get there, uh, I just want to make sure if you're not familiar with uh, the big picture story of the Bible, um, that you kind of know what the what the story is, what the narrative is of the scripture. So um, around the village, we talk about the big picture story of the Bible in four uh, steps. First is creation, uh, then it's fall, then redemption, then new creation. So creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Uh, So in creation, we see God make everything good. He orders the world, uh, brings purpose and beauty to everything, uh, makes man, makes everything that's ever been made, uh, and gives it in order, gives it purpose and it's good. We are in right relationship with each other, with creation, with the Lord. Uh, But then what happens is sin enters the world. We sin. Uh, We rebel against God uh, and his order. And so we end up uh, breaking our relationship with him. We come under condemnation and judgment. We are separated from him, separated from the Lord who is the source of our life. Uh, And so death and brokenness and all sorts of stuff enter into the world. Sin and suffering. Uh, Satan uh, is the one who tricked us into that. And so we live in a world where we have enemies, uh, where we are at odds with each other. We are opposed to the Lord and creation itself is just groaning, longing for itself to be fixed. Uh, And then we get to redemption where uh, God from the get-go, the moment that we messed stuff up, he put into action a plan to save us, uh, to redeem us, to restore us, to bring things back to the way they were before, but but even better, to really uh, advance what he had wanted to, to accomplish in the first place. Um, and so he does that through a line of people, uh, ultimately where we get to Jesus, the, the promised uh, new man who would actually do what he was supposed to do, live the way he was supposed to live, uh, and he did. 
He, he lived the perfect life that we were supposed to have lived, died the death that we deserve to die um, under judgment because of our sin, and he rose from the dead, uh, proving that he defeated sin and death and that new life was available to everyone who trusted in him. Uh, and, and now we wait for him uh, as he is ascended, sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over the earth. We are waiting for him to return one day to reunite heaven and earth to make all things new uh, and, and to basically make a new creation. So that's the big picture story of the scriptures. Um, and so what we're looking at today as we look at Genesis 1 is creation, the very beginning of that story. And so we're not going to read all of it. We're going to start in uh, chapter 1, verse 26. So uh, what's happened up to that point is, is the earth, it was formless, it was void, um, it was just kind of a, a barren wasteland, and yet God was around at that point in time. He was hovering over the deep. And what we read about in Genesis 1, 1, uh, it says that God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, that's what it's telling us we're about to witness, is, is him making, ordering the heavens and the earth. In day one, uh, he, he makes light and dark day and night. Uh, day two, it's, it's the seas and the sky. He separates the waters uh, in such a way. And in day three, uh, he creates the earth. He makes the earth rise from the water and vegetation sprouts up on it. Day four, he fills the lights uh, with, with signs for uh, seasons and days and years. So uh, sun and moon and stars and those sorts of things. Day five, he fills the sea and the sky with creatures, uh, with birds and with fish and that stuff. And then day six, he fills the earth with animals and with us. And this is where we're going to pick up in Genesis 1, 26. We'll read until 2, 3. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. All right, so we see uh, in this section that God starts creating the heavens and the earth and he finishes it. That's what we see in, in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, uh, verse 1. They're bookends to this section that God, uh, what he's doing is he's bringing order to the heavens in the earth. He's forming the place. He's forming purpose out of this void, out of this chaos. Uh, he's creating time and, and weather and explaining food and all this other stuff. He is giving shape and purpose to the earth. 
Um, and so what we see here, just in this little bit, as it relates to gender and sexuality, is uh, basically an archetype for humanity. We see uh, God create man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So we don't see uh, named Adam and Eve yet here, um, but I think it's really important for us to understand that, that as the, the author of Genesis is writing this, um, he is talking about uh, historical people. We're, we're going to see that here as we move into Genesis 2. And at the same time, those historical people are also archetypes, meaning that uh, what's true about them is also true about the rest of humanity. Uh, they're representative for us in that way. Uh, and so what we see here in this little chunk as it relates to gender and sexuality for them and for us today is that we are embodied, we are imaged, and we are sexed. That's what we see here in this chunk. We are embodied, which might be a really uh, easy thing to skip over, um, but, but God gave us bodies. He created Man, our bodies were made on purpose by God and for God and for his creation, uh, for the purposes that he made us for. And so he gave us bodies. That's, that's actually a really significant thing, especially if you remember what we talked about in the very first episode. We looked at 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 together and just the significance of the body, uh, how important that is to Jesus um, to uh, the spirit. He, he dwells in our bodies like a temple. We are members of Christ. Our, our bodies matter deeply. And so we are embodied. That's a huge truth we see here. Um, we're also imaged. We're made in the image of God. Uh, now, this doesn't just mean that we matter, that we are important, that we have value. This doesn't just ascribe some worth to us in some way. But to be an image of God is a vocation. Um, it means that we have dominion over everything to, to rule in God's stead. Uh, another way to think about it is we are God's idols. Um, if you're familiar with the Old and New Testament, we, we see idols pop up uh, throughout the world. We're told not to make idols, not to bow down to idols. Uh, and usually we might think of those things as golden statues or wooden statues or uh, stuff like that that people worshiped. And that seems maybe silly to us, but... Idols were idols back in the day, not just because they looked a certain way. They, they didn't look to idols uh, as if the stick or the stone had power, but they believed the essence of whatever God they worshipped actually lived there. It was mediated through that particular idol. So they had access to the power and the presence of their God through that idol. That's what made them so significant. That's why they would bow down to them and give offerings to them because it mediated their relationship with that God. And what we see happening here is God is making us his image. We don't bow down to idols. We are God's images. We are his idols here uh, on this planet to rule with his presence and his power in his stead alongside of him having dominion over this world that he's making. Um, which is pretty significant. It's a, so it's a vocation. Yes, it ascribes meaning and value and, and worth to us, but it's also a vocation. Pretty significant. So we are imaged. And then thirdly, we're, we're sexed. He says he made us male and female. Uh, it's, it's the same words when we look at Noah's Ark uh, later. Uh, man, it's the, the, the creatures were two by two. They were male 
and female. And in conjunction with that stuff, we're called to be fruitful uh, and to multiply, to fill the earth, literally, uh, and to subdue it. And that's a blessing that he gives us. And so, to be clear, um, in the context of gender and sexuality, uh, the categories we use today in 2021, we're not talking about gender, gender identity, or any of those things. We're talking about uh, biological sex, right? It, it would be safe to assume uh, cisgender thought in some way that, uh, that, that biological sex and gender identity and gender expression were meant to align together uh, because they did not have categories that separated those things out uh, back in their day. Um, but what we're, what's in view here specifically is uh, biological sex because it's tied to reproduction. Uh, male and female reproduction, bearing fruit and multiplying. Uh, and so these are archetypes. These qualities are true of all humanity in their simplest form in pre-fall ordered creation, including this binary of male and female biological sex. Uh, so I know some of us already probably have questions about <clears throat> what do you do with intersex folks? And we will get there down the road. Uh, we will address those for sure. Um, but one thing that I want us to, to, to have in mind as we're looking at not just this passage, but the rest of scriptures is that we need to be consistent in the way that we apply this stuff. And, and we'll talk about this when we get to the, the law uh, and the Old Testament law and stuff as well as it relates to sexuality. Um, we need to be consistent because, look, if, if we believe that the image of God is a universal thing, and then we derive that here from Genesis 1, then we also have to be consistent with the other two things that are here, that we are both embodied and that God made that us that way on purpose and that we are sexed, male and female, right? So we have to be consistent. We can't say, ah, I, I want to say and declare that everyone is made in the image of God, but I also want to say that Man, uh, male and female, not the only two things that God had intended in creation, uh, right? There are valid questions and conversations, discussions to be had about those other things later. But, but as far as we see in Genesis 1, we just have to be consistent with what God's design is, at least his archetype for people that we see here. We have to be consistent in the way we apply these attributes, embodied, imaged, and sexed as male and female. And this order, uh, God calls blessed. Uh, this is pretty significant. He has, a, he has a positive view of bodies, of maleness and femaleness, even of imaging, uh, us imaging him. Um, we, we know that our bodies break today. Uh, we don't image God perfectly today. Uh, we know that we don't embrace our masculinity and femininity as we should today. Uh, maleness and femaleness, there's some biological stuff that goes on sometimes there. So we know that's not perfect. We'll get there when we get to Genesis 3. Um, but in the meantime, this was God's archetype as far as we can, we can gather. So I uh, want to hop into the next section of Genesis, starting uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Um, and we're going to read through uh, verse 9 and then jump to, to 15 through 25. There's a section in between there that's just a description of land. Uh, we won't spend our time reading that. That's not relevant to our conversation today. So Genesis 2, 4 says this, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens. So real quick, uh, just as we had book ends, we had an intro and a closing for the first section that, hey, we're talking about God creating the heavens and the earth. 
um, we're introduced to a new section now in Genesis 2 that says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So now we have in mind, ah, the beginning of humanity's story, generations, families, uh, the, the family line. That's now what we're going to be looking at starting in Genesis 2-4. We'll go on. Uh, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll skip down to 15. Uh, he writes, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, so we see here uh, generations, again, are in view. Uh, the, the new generations beginning this humanity that God has made in this new uh, heavens and new earth together in this garden uh, of Eden. And so he's bringing order to the generations. How are these generations going to come about? And so we see some, some things here. Um, first, we see that, that God says, man, it, it's not good for this man to be alone. Um, it is really important for us to understand that this is not a commentary on singleness, all right? It's not saying it's not good to be single. He's saying it's not good to be alone. And alone for what? Uh, alone in carrying out this purpose, this purpose of working and keeping the garden, of filling the earth and subduing it. Uh, in order for generations to occur, in order for this work to happen, the bearing fruit and multiplying, he can't do that by himself. He needs a partner that's fit for him, right? He, that's not something he can do on his own. And, and to, to zero in on this word fit, or maybe your, your uh, translation says suitable uh, partner for him, that, that he needs a, a fit or suitable partner. This is a, a really cool word. Um, it's kinego. Uh, it's a compound word uh, of ki, which is uh, as or, or like, uh, and neged, which is uh, opposite or against. And so it's, it's one word, one compound word made of two words uh, that, that are like and 
opposite or against. It's, it's one word with these two opposing words together in it. Um, so what God is saying here is, is Adam needs a suitable helper who is like him in his humanity, uh, which is why we see God bring all the animals to Adam and none of them are suitable helpers because they're not like him in humanity. Uh, they cannot possibly help him bear fruit and multiply. Uh, and yet he himself, it has to be different in sex. This partner has to be different from him. It can't be a, a male, it has to be a female uh, in order for them to bear fruit and multiply, right? And so we see in this word of fit or suitable, um, the, the, this whole idea that it has to be like him in humanity and yet different in sex. Pretty significant in order to carry out this purpose that God has put Adam in the garden for. So uh, we also see the word helper, uh, which many of you might know is, uh, is a word, ezer. Um, it, it's someone who helps, someone who's on the same mission as you are, and it often references the Lord. So it's not this downgrade or uh, not some hierarchical word by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it's simply someone who's coming alongside someone on their mission and helping them with that mission. That's what we see here of uh, the kind of partner, a, a suitable helper for Adam. Uh, we also see this partner being made from uh, what most translations uh, say is a rib. Uh, in Hebrew, that, that word selah, uh, it, it is not translated anywhere else as the word rib. That's one of my pet peeves in this particular part of scripture that's constantly translated as rib. It's not rib, it's side. It's like a, a half uh, almost. This word selah um, usually is in, used in reference to the side of sacred architecture, like the temple or like the Ar Ark of the Covenant or the tabernacle, something like that. And, and usually when there are two sides to something, a left and a right, it's often used there. And so what we see God do is when he gives Adam this, uh, this deep sleep, this vision of him making this suitable helper, it's literally, uh, it's not a, a better half or a worse half. It's the, it's the same half uh, where they are both part of this sacred uh, space, this sacred work of, uh, of being an image bearer of God, of working and keeping the garden, of bearing fruit and multiplying that also mediates uh, the presence of the Lord, which is a very sacred thing and what we see sacred architecture doing um, later in the Old Testament, the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, all of that stuff, right? So it's a, it is an uplifting, really cool word that has lots of meaning that if you just hear rib, um, kind of, uh, it's under the radar. We don't see that. So, so yeah, we see that there. There is equality between male and female, an equal ontology there. Um, and then, gosh, Adam, when he sees the woman, he says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Um, this phrase, or at least uh, a subdued version of this phrase, uh, you're my bone and flesh, is used throughout the Old Testament. Um, we see it a few different times, and it's always somebody referring to like a cousin or an uncle or a nephew. It's uh, a bit of an extended family. They're kinsmen, right? But here we see Adam say, no, 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 you're, you're bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. There is a distinction, almost like an ultimate uh, relatability or union uh, kinship here with the woman that's distinct from every other kind of family relationship, which is just really neat. 
uh, we see um, kind of this archetype then uh, thrown in towards the end of the chapter. It talks about, hey, um, this is why uh, people leave their fathers and their mothers. And so we see this idea that um, in general that we're called to, to leave our family uh, and go to a different family. So um, the, the generations that are formed down the road should be formed by families made up of people from different uh, nuclear families, if that makes sense. So you leave a family to make a new sort of family. That's how generations are formed. And we know kind of weird in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, when it's like, hey, there's not that many people around. So what's that look like? Uh, incest is later specifically called out down the road. Um, but yeah, this is the archetype is that we would leave different families, men and women, and come together to form a new family. And, and part of that new family union is this one flesh Union, which we talked about in, uh, we looked at 1 Corinthians 6, that one flesh union is specifically about um, the sexual union, the, the sexual function and fitness between male uh, and female. Um, and so, man, uh, what we see here is that in that kind of relationship, male and female, husband and wife, in the context of marriage, that sexual union, there's no shame in that at all. They were naked and they were not ashamed. What a, what a wild thing to think about even today. That there's a positive view of sex and sexuality and our bodies and all sorts of things. Like that's just such a, it seems like a foreign thing to us today and that's just sad. Um, but that is the, the view that the Old Testament has of who we are, sex, sexuality, and body. It's a positive view um, of those things. So um, we see God kind of ordering this process, describing to us uh, the way that families come about at, at the beginning, uh, the, the day that God formed the heavens and the earth. And so here's a sentence. It's a little long, but it's how I would kind of describe the ordering of this family a bit. All right. So uh, sexually different humans from different families form a monogamous union ordered towards procreation and the fulfillment of of God's mission together. I'll read that one more time. Uh, sexually different humans from different families form a monogamous union ordered towards procreation and the fulfillment of God's mission together. It's a way of trying to summarize a whole heck of a lot that we see um, into one sentence about the kind of the archetype of family and generations in some way. Now look, real quick, uh, marriage doesn't have to lead to procreation in order for it to be right or meaningful or what have you. We know that because of the fall, which we'll get to in the next episode, infertility and all kinds of things, th those are things, right? Uh, and yet what we get to say and, and see here in this archetype is that, um, and yet a, a marriage between a male and a female, it points in that direction. Even if it can't happen, um, it points in that direction. Again, this is the archetype that we're given in Genesis 2. Um, procreation, reproduction, is not the only facet of marriage, nor is it the only purpose of sex. And yet, it is what's in focus here, which makes sense because, again, we the whole thing literally kicked off with this, hey, we're talking about generations now, how this thing gets started. So it's in focus, um, but, but certainly this isn't all that the scriptures have to say about marriage or even sex. If you've read Song of Solomon before, certainly it's not just about reproduction. Uh, it's, it's not knocking singleness. Um, again, generations are in mind. And so it's not speaking to every human uh, per se, but it is speaking about humanity in general in terms of being alone and all that stuff. That It's not talking about singleness 
Um, we know that uh, once God's people, they were literally as a nation and as a, a lineage, they were sustained and built by the continuing of that bloodline, right? Like that was kind of important that Jesus was going to come from Abraham and David and Judah and all these other guys. Like if, if the procreation or the reproduction stopped, um, then that would kind of be a problem. But what we know now is that God's people are built and sustained by the preaching of the gospel, right? And so, yes, like, man, having kids, bearing fruit, multiplying, you get to do that. That is huge. We get to build God's church in that way too, his people in that way too. And yet we know that people are included in that family through their faith and belief by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So all of us get to participate in the building up of God's people and the continued legacy uh, of the gospel and God's promises. So, uh, so look, without going beyond what the scriptures have to say, uh, we get to see that the archetype for humanity, um, individually, it's, it's embodied, imaged, sexed. We're all made in that way, male and female. And then the archetype for families, we'd say uh, people of the same image, right? They're human, but different sex, different biological sex. And folks from separate families uh, come together to form monogamous unions, all right? So uh, the archetype in today's terms, we're talking about in today's terms, you might say we're biologically male or female and heterosexual. Uh, and that families, they're formed uh, by monogamous um, married couples, husbands and wives. Um, so that's trying to kind of use some of our words to describe, uh, again, what, what they wrote, what they understood back then I, I don't believe this is what I have said, but this is what the scriptures are saying. Um, and so, man, I could even res I'm restraining myself and even saying uh, the cisgender thing. We're not even going there because, again, they didn't have those categories. But this is explicitly what's being talked about: biologically male or female, heterosexual, uh, and, and the families uh, we see are, are monogamous and they are married together. And, and the binaries that we see here. Um, they are blessed. God calls them good. God calls them very good. And they are the only binaries that we see. They're the only archetypes that we see here in pre-fall creation. Um, and so, look, here's the thing. We, we, we actually talked about this in the class. Someone asked about it. Uh, we can say, hey, like, look, generations are in mind here. And so uh, the, the scope of this application really only applies to um, baby-making relationships, families that can produce kids. It's not, it's not knocking or prohibiting any other kind of relationship, any other kind of sexual behavior. It's simply uh, kind of saying, hey, this is how families are being formed. This is how we bear fruit and multiply literally uh, as a species. And so that is a, a valid argument. That's a valid observation that if generations are in mind, then maybe not every other kind of relationship is in mind here. And so what it can speak to is limited. And so if I grant that, uh, which I did in the class, number one, I would say that's not necessarily a positive argument for any other kind of affirmed uh, sexuality uh, or understanding of gender or any of those things at all. It's, if, it's an argument from silence if you want to use that as evidence for some affirming argument for some other kind of, of sexuality or what have you. Um, but then also, I would expect the same kind of um, explicit blessing or calling good uh, of these different variations uh, of this pre-fall uh, archetype, that, the stuff that we've seen. I would expect to see that 
throughout the scriptures somewhere in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. I would, I would expect that to be made clear. Uh, just like when there was a, a shift uh, from, hey, uh, God's people can't include Gentiles, or it wasn't really made as explicit uh, back in the Old Testament, even though we, we still see it happen. One of the mysteries of the New Testament that we see that Paul loves to talk about is the fact that, hey, Gentiles are now included uh, apart from the law in the family of God. That was a huge shift for them, and that was made very explicit. Uh, the food loss no longer being a thing they had to uphold, even for the Jews, um, that was made explicit. And so if there are shifts away from things, or if there is a broader scope uh, that simply isn't captured here in Genesis 1 and 2, then I would expect to see uh, that affirmation uh, made explicit somewhere else in the Old Testament uh, and or the New Testament. So I think it's fair. Uh, that's how we, we talked about in the class. And uh, as of recording this, we're still actually walking through the scriptures and, and looking for that. We've not seen it uh, quite yet. So uh, so look, that might be hard uh, for you to hear, for some of you to hear, for some of you to think about sharing with someone else. Uh, maybe to not see yourself, to not see a loved one or some someone in this scripture, like fitting this archetype. Um, but man, it doesn't mean that this is wrong and it doesn't mean that that it's harmful first of all like what i need you to understand is that that this isn't where the story ends um it is where it begins and none of us live here anymore none of us live in pre-fall creation all right and so this is not erasing anyone and it's not negating anyone's existence um it doesn't actually mean that god has no use for us we're going to see in genesis 3 um quite the opposite actually uh, we will find out soon that all of us are in the same boat um, and none of us embrace this kind of order that God has prescribed for us uh, and that we receive from him and live in. And so uh, in the next episode, we'll look at Genesis 3 and kind of find out how that stuff unravels and the implications for us then uh, because of that. So let's remind us as we close out from this that, man, remind a reminder from our very first class um, that you are not your sexuality. You are not your orientation. Uh, you are not your gender, your biological sex, any of those things. Those are not your ultimate identities. In Christ, you are his. You've been bought with a price regardless of those things. All right, so good news for us today. I'm gonna end it there. We'll pick up in Genesis 3 next time.